Hi folks, this is Jack Spiergo with another edition of Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is episode 1101 of the Survival Podcast, and it is uh, April 1st, uh, 2013. That means that we have, uh, we have turned another month and we have officially ended the first quarter of 2013. The year is flying by, tick, 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 tick. That's a little bit faster. It should be tick, tick, tick at one second intervals. But I did it fast because that's what ha seems to happen to time. The longer you procrastinate and wait to work on things, the faster the time seems to move. So are you working on liberty? Because if you're not, you're headed toward tyranny. Those are the only two choices you have in life. You are on a sliding scale with personal freedom and individual liberty. Whether you choose to be there or not doesn't matter. You are there, and there's no such thing as being static on that scale. So you're either working to improve that personal liberty or you're not. That's what the show's really all about. And I like to give you a little reminder from time today. But it's Monday, Monday, glum day, Monday, the first day of the week. Ah, everybody hates Mondays. Um, but it's really a cool day for me because I get to respond to your emails on the air. This is a feedback show. And uh, the way you get content on the air today, and it's going to be very, very much economic content because there's so much going on. And I just got so much stuff on that this week. Uh, and when I get tons of stuff all on the same thing, I tend to cover it. But I'll try to throw in a few kind of, uh, you know, curveballs uh, at you with some questions and things that are unrelated as well. More in the second half of today's show. Uh, but if you want to submit content for a show like this with an understanding that I do get a couple hundred emails a day, um, the way you want to do this is you want to send me an email. You want to put something for Jack in the subject line. So you want to put question for Jack, comment for Jack, article for Jack, video for Jack. That's the formula to follow with your subject. Don't put anything else, just those three words, a word for Jack. And uh, send that email to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. And then the best way to get my attention with the screening process that I have to do rapidly based on everything is make your point in one sentence Provide a link that's, that if there's a link to go along with it, or ask your question in one or two sentences, and if there's no link, fine. Then put your details below. If you do that, your odds of getting through the screening process go up. It's not me being a jerk. It's just a simple matter of logistics and time and how much time I can spend a day scanning emails. All right. Before we get into your emails, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today safe, uh, is uh, Safe Castle Royal. Safe Castle Royals, who I called the original Survival Podcast sponsor, because guess what? When there was nobody that wanted to sponsor this show, there was Safe Castle Royal. They were the first people that stepped up and said, we believe in what you're doing. We know where you're going, and we want to formally become a sponsor of the Survival Podcast. So early on that I had to say, let me figure out exactly how I'm going to manage to do that for you, because right now I don't even have a program. The entire program was built around accepting the first uh, sponsor being Safecastle, the Listener Ad Council, which determines whether or not a sponsor qualifies to do business with you guys, which is an independent council of moderators on the forum. That entire idea came up to vet out Safecastle and say, are these the guys that we really want to be our flagship sponsor? They passed the flying colors. They've been here now for over four years, and I don't think they're going anywhere. They have everything you could want for your prepping needs. They have a wonderful discount program. $49, and you get discounts from them for the rest of your life. It's a one-time payment membership. They sell it every day for that $49. Guess what? If you are a member support brigade member, they will give it to you for free. That's right. 
That one benefit alone pays for all but $1 of your first year of MSB. That's what a great sponsor they are. They have a wonderful selection, and they make some great hardened shelters. You know, you don't have to believe in the apocalypse to think that maybe having a hardened shelter is a good idea. You live in storm country. It starts to look more and more attractive to you every time there's another weather report of some twister tearing up a house. There's a lot of reasons for hardened shelters, so check out their site on hardened shelters as well. Next up today, survival gear bags. You know, I work really hard to try to do business with companies that I bring to you as sponsors that are part of our community. They're not just companies that want the ad space and are willing to pay for it, but they're part of our community. Like Safecastle I just talked about. Survival Gear Bags is part of this community in a totally different way. They're really a part of this community. Kelly John Doe was a longtime listener of the show in the first year and uh, got an idea. Mate, you know, I'm in fulfillment. I can get some good buys on some things and get some good prices. And he set up some group buys on the forum, and that led him to decide, well, maybe I could do this at a bigger level. And he put together survival gear bags right out of this community. And he's been doing business uh, with this community for about three years. He's been a sponsor for about six months now. Just great reports on everything that he's doing. I like what he's doing so much. He's also running the gear shop for me now. So that tells you how much confidence I have in Kelly and survival gear bags. He and his wife actually run that as a family business now. And they do a great job, and they've brought some really amazing stuff to the table, uh, both with survival gear bags and the gear shop. So check out survival gear bags today for the gear uh, that you need and the bags you need to carry them in, and you're going to get great service and great pricing and a really cool selection on stuff you don't just find anywhere, survivalgearbags.com. Next up, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty or prior service, and first responders like EMTs and paramedics. I do offer a discount to you. To get the discount, send me an email with service discount in the subject line. Tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did if you're prior service, and I'll respond with a discount code for you that you can use when you sign up. Please do this before, not after you sign up for the MSB. Uh, it's really a pain in the butt to do it for somebody after they sign up. You guys are supposed to be procedural in that word world. That's procedural. If you signed up in the past and didn't get the discount, when you come up for renewal, get in touch with me a week or two before your renewal date, and we'll square it away. Uh, that should be going away pretty soon. There shouldn't be anybody left in that world very, very soon, because the service discount's been around for about a year now. So that should have already been pretty much cleaned out at this time. And uh, anyway, last but not least, uh, I do want to remind you guys about 13skills.com. Get on over there, check out the blog. Dorothy's posting three or four different members' skill sets a week, things that they're doing. Get involved with each other, commit to mastering or vastly improving 13 skills in 2013. Set your goals and then knock them out one at a time. And uh, stretch a little bit this year and uh, develop those skills because I can tell you, We're going to need them. Some of the things you're going to hear today, I'll tell you why we really start needing to learn how to do shit again in America, and that's just a fundamental reality. Um, I'm going to start off with kind of the uh, the first story that's going to tell you that America's days of complete dominance in the world economically are indeed uh, kind of kind of falling away, just as somebody named Spirico told you they would years ago. And I started talking about the BRIC alliance, and when I started talking about the BRIC alliance in 2008, people were like, there is no BRIC alliance, that's just a media term, they're not really doing anything, it just sounds cool, so they want to say it, and of course BRIC meaning Brazil, Russia, India, and China. 
Well, now South Africa is involved. Now, here's the thing about South Africa. Um, they're really a tiny economy compared to Brazil, Russia, India, and China, but they have something kind of special uh, as far as things go with the developing world in Africa. I'm going to just give you a little bit of this article off of Bloomberg here. The biggest emerging markets are uniting to tackle underdevelopment and currency volatility with plans to set up institutions that encroach on the worlds of the World Bank and International Monetary Fund. The leaders of the so-called BRICS nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, are set to approve the establishment of a new development bank during the annual summit that began today in, eastern South, in the eastern South African city of Durban. Officials from all five nations say they will also discuss pooling foreign currency reserves to ward off balance of payments or currency crises. The deepest rationale for the BRICS is almost certainty, certainly the creation of the new Bretton Woods-type institutions that are inclined toward the developing world, Martin Davies, chief executive officer of Johannesburg-based Frontier Advisory. Uh, which provides research on emerging markets, said in a phone interview, quote, there is a shift in power from the traditional to the emerging world. There is a lot of geopolitical concern about this shift in the Western world, end quote. The BRICS nations, which have combined foreign currency reserves of $4.4 trillion and account for 43% of the world's population, are seeking greater sway in the global, financial, uh, global finance to match their rising economic power. They have called for an overhaul of management of the World Bank and IMF, which created Bretton Woods New, and was created in Bretton Woods in New Hampshire in 1944, and opposed the practice of their respective presidents being drawn from the U.S. and Europe. Reform needed. Quote, we need a change in the way business is conducted in the international financial institutions, South African International Relations Minister Mate Nikoa Mashbane said in a March 15th speech in Johannesburg. They need to be reformed, end quote. The U.S. has failed to ratify a 2010 agreement to give more sway to emerging markets at the IMF when it secured Jim Young Kim, an American, as head World Bank last year over candidates from Nigeria and Colombia. Finance ministers and central bank governors from the BRICS nations who met in Durban today agreed to set up currency crisis fund of about $100 billion. Brazil, Brazilian finance minister Guido Mantega told reporters today he didn't give details of proposed funding for the new bank, which Brazil wants established by 2014. The nation's leaders are due to sign the final accord tomorrow. You can read the rest of the article if you choose to. I will put a link to it in today's show notes. And it can seem kind of staunchy and stodgy and, oh, so I'm going to set up a billion dollars and a hundred billion dollars and these five countries are getting involved. What's, what's the big deal here, Jack? Why do we care? Because the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund has chiefly been the, let's say, international analog to the central banks. In other words, The central bankers run their banks of their little fiefdom communities, and our central bank, the Fed, tries to run the whole world. But there needs to be an interrelationary uh, component to that, and that's been the International Monetary Fund uh, and the World Bank. And through these entities, a lot of money has been lent. And you say, well, that's good. They're lending money to people like, you know, Ethiopia so they can, like, develop their country, or Rwanda so they can develop their country in South and Central American countries and developer countries, and that, that's good work. But what they actually do is they put these countries into debt, 
to a point where they can never get out of it. And then they force them into certain models, such as nationalizing their water uh, rights and uh, into agricultural models that take away productive land that was being used to feed local people and now must be used with conventional agriculture to produce grain for export. And they lock them into these things. It's just one of the many abuses. It is completely dominated by uh, people from Europe and the United States of America. And the rest of the world is like, you know, we're tired of this. When you couple that with the next story that we're going to talk about, and I'll just leave it out for now, but just to say that with in, in addition to all of this, the United States of America's currency, the dollar, is considered the world's reserve currency, and other nations have can you know have had to convert their currency to dollars, make the exchange, and then go back to their respective currencies. So, for instance, if Brazil was going to buy something from Russia, then they would take the Brazilian currency and convert it to dollars, pay Russia in dollars, and Russia would convert the currency back to their currency. This provides a tremendous advantage to the United States, which I won't get into yet because it's really more part of the next story. But when you couple the U.S. control of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank along with European control together and that dominance, it's basically told the rest of the world things are going to be our way. You can go screw. So one of the important things that, that gets kind of lost in a world of statistics is the fact that 43% of the population of the entire planet lives in those five countries. Uh, that's almost half the world, folks, in just five countries. This country here in Europe... You know, there's a we we don't really have enough people that we can really say we can outvote them, so to speak, right? And, and the world's not a democracy; it's not designed to be that way uh, with a world government yet, thank God. But the reality is, there is a democracy always at play in the world of commerce, and it's how money is spent and treated, and how it responds, and how it creates dynamic shifts on the planet. Because now that we have, and this is probably true only for about a hundred years, a true global marketplace, we can get goods and services from one side of the ocean to the other in a matter of days at this point. In fact, we can do it in a day or less with air travel. Um, the world has a lot more dynamics going on with the ability of nations to basically rise economically. So... What these five nations have said is, hey, you know what? We've got almost half the world's population. Why should we let you a-holes over there in Europe and America tell us how to conduct business? We'll just start our own bank. And you think, well, somebody start a new bank. It's That's not a big deal. No, no, it's a big deal. It's the purpose of the bank that we need to pay attention to. It is to fund developing nations so that they can compete for that development better. Instead of having to go through our... Euro-American dominated sector to be able to walk right into to, you know Nigeria or into Rwanda and say, hey, you want more help developing these resources? Now, they're already doing this, but they're creating a pool of money that they can do this with using their own currencies and ignoring ours. Basically, they're stepping up to the plate and saying, we're going to compete at this global scale where nobody's ever competed before. And by the way, we have a few billion people behind us. Uh, this is something we need to pay attention to. And I'm going to go right in to the next story 
because it's it's very important that you start tying things together and not looking at them individually. When we look at them individually, there's two things that happen. One, people freak the hell out when they shouldn't. And then two is people ignore things that are important when they shouldn't. So you can either under or over uh, react to situations when you don't understand the totality. So what is going on in the world that's beginning to pull away the U.S. dominated world of the dollar. Well, when you think about Brazil, Russia, India, China, you don't really think, well, hold on, I got to give the South African thing here and tell you what, what they're doing in this before I go to the next story. Um, you look at South Africa, you look at its economy and its population, and it, it's like, you know, remember it was either Sesame Street or the Electric Company. I don't remember which one when I was a kid that was on PBS. We had like one station, and you would go out and turn the antenna with a monkey wrench and spin it, and you could get a two more stations. And one of the three we could get was PBS. So as a kid, I grew up on Big Bird and Ernie and all that crap. Well, they had this song, One of These Things is Not Like the Other. Okay, so if you look at... The size of the economy, the dominance in the world, and you look at the BRICS now with the S at the end, which is almost like they let South Africa in because it made a cool, you know, it went from brick to bricks. It's not really why, because but you do go South Africa doesn't fit the size of the economy or anything. What South Africa has is one of the most developed countries with the most industry and finance and ability to function and and most advanced societies. When I say advanced, I mean from a standpoint of they're they're not still in the Stone Age. They're not South Africa's not a third world nation, okay? And unlike some other de- fairly well modern developed nations in Africa, they're not part of the whole Middle East mess, right? Egypt is a very developed country, but it's kind of you really want to conduct business through Egypt right now? Does it seem like a good idea? Right, so that whole hotbed mess is is as far away as it could be and still be in Africa, but yet they're an African nation, right? And then there's this whole Central Africa that has all this just just waiting to be developed natural resources in a population clamoring for anything better than what they have. Guess what South Africa is saying? We're the we're the gateway. We're the gateway. So sure, we'll get involved. We obviously you don't want as much money from us as you guys are going to put in. We don't have it, so we'll put our you know billion or two in your bank thing. But what we want to be is a conduit. So now these four nations with a strong alliance with South South Africa have a developed beachhead on the African continent with a formalized relationship financially for the development of the continent, which China has already been heavily involved in. But this can accelerate that. And imagine if you can get cooperation between the Chinese and India, right? How much more could be done? And if you start bringing Brazil into this mix, and Brazil, what's special about Brazil? That would be ethanol. Brazil really knows how to do ethanol well. Better than just about anybody else. And there's this whole piece of Africa that shouldn't because it's a monocrop and it's bad, but there's a shitload of Africa that you could grow sugarcane in. And one of the uh, most dominant crops in Africa right now is sorghum, which is where sorghum originates is in Africa. And converting from growing sorghum to cane, it's very natural for people to do. It, it seems to make sense. Bad idea, but it seems to make sense in a lot of ways. So 
there's a there's you start looking and start picking this apart. There's this whole ripe fruit that is that is the developing world of Africa, where most of the development is left to be done. And these nations have decided that, that we're too big of a hegemon, U.S. and Europe together, especially, and just the U.S. even alone, to take on directly, individually. So they form this collective of unlikely partners. And South Africa has said, we'll enable this. Now, so you think about those nations, and you go, we're pretty good allies with India, but we, you know, I mean, there's only so much tightness there. We're not culturally, you know, tight with India the way that we would be with somebody like Australia. And if you look about it, or, you know, even South Africa, we've had some pretty big grievances there. But when you think about the world and our allies, you would think that, you know, if anybody's with us, it's the English and the Australians. It seems like those two guys always, always got our back. But see, but see, the thing about the English is they're kind of in control of this whole Uh, European sector. It's like they're the head of the whole thing. And then the U.S., of course, is dominant everywhere because we're the biggest and the baddest on the block for now. The Australians have always kind of been like really friendly to both of us, but really haven't been a player in anything. You know, I mean, it's like they're not the head of anything other than, you know, I don't know, they're They're more, you know, a, a larger economy than New Zealand. I mean, was that their claim? But they have this same kind of a, a gateway to the whole East, right? They have this 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 island nation that has a long history of being a very peaceful nation, other than their entries into world war the world wars, because kind of that's everybody kind of had to, especially in that part of the world. No one really dislikes them or anything. There's, I mean, there's not a lot of Australian hatred out there anywhere in the world or Australian outrage anywhere in the world. There's some of it, I'm sure, but not the way there is against maybe us or the UK. But there are buddies, right? I mean, mate and shrimp on the Barbie and all that. I mean, they wouldn't throw us under the bus, would they? Um, maybe. Uh, maybe if it was in their best interest, too, and they just looked at it as strictly business. Here's what I'm talking about. Australia is right in the middle of forming a relationship that looks like it's going to happen with dun, 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 China. And what this is going to allow for is for China and Australia to directly exchange their currencies. And this looks like the real deal. It looks like it's going all the way through this time. It's been rattled around about before. But um, over on Zero Hedge today, there's an article, and I'll read a little bit of it to you. Over the weekend, Australia appears to have come to the same conclusion with the Australian reporting, the Australian's a paper, by the way, that the land down under is set to say goodbye to the world's, quote, reserve currency, end quote, in its trade dealings with the world's biggest marginal, marginal economic power, China, and will enable the direct convertibility of the Australian dollar into the Chinese yuan uh, without U.S. dollar intermediation. The process slashes, slashing costs for thousands of businesses also confirming speculation that China is fully intent on little by little chipping away at the dollar's reserve currency status until one day it is no longer. So let's just make this simple instead of reading this long article for you and tell you what's going on. There is a tremendous amount of trade, billions of dollars of trade between China and Australia. And every time they do that little dance that I've talked about, it, there's a cost associated with it, and it has to run through banking institutions like the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank using dollars, and it enriches Europe and the United States. And it really enriches the United States because it has to be done in dollars. 
okay? And it doesn't enrich you and me. It enriches our financially elite banking layer because they're the ones that run the process. Let me explain something that people do not get about the economy, and it's so important to understand when you start thinking about things like cap and trade and why big businesses that you think would be opposed to cap and trade think it's a wonderful idea. They, as long as they touch money, they love the idea. Because when money moves, somebody gets to charge a fee for it. It doesn't matter if it's an even exchange and there's not even a tax on it. There's still a processing fee. You get paid for the money to run through your computer for a microsecond. And in this instance, that payment is going to American banking systems. And the country with the greatest advantage economically in the world is us. Why? Us, U.S. Yeah, see how it works out? Because we don't have to convert anything. Our money's already dollars. But the people on the other end of our transactions are now forced to convert from the dollar back to their own currency to use the money domestically at home. So we still run it through there. And we still enrich ourselves. So we win and we win and we win and we never lose. So what China and, and Australia have said is, you know what, we'll just exchange our money directly. Screw them. And, and, and you're going to hear all kinds of crap about, well, you can't do that. Well, why not? Because, uh, because of the petrodollar. And because of, yeah, but what are you going to do? That's what we're going to do. Bomb Australia? You know, start a war with China? Does that, I mean, there's nothing you can do here. Now, when Middle Eastern countries start doing this, we go in there and we intervene and all because they're little and we can smack them around. And that's the truth. But you can't do that here. You've got a staunch ally in Australia that's just like, hey, mate, it's just, it's just business, right? And then you've got the largest military other than ours in the world on the other side of it. There's nothing to be done here. And once one person does it, everybody can do it, just like school. That's why they crack down on your heart when you start screwing off. You let one get away with it, then everybody's going to get away with it. Well, we're, we're heading down that road. These two stories do not seem related They should be one story together if the media was doing its job. The formation of a new world banking unit run by nations that are absolutely independent of Europe and North America, okay, that are the, the, the largest four developing economies in the world, commensurate with one of those entering into a direct currency trade agreement at the exact same time these two things are really coming to a head together with one of the staunchest allies of Europe's uh, market, specifically the UK and the United States of America, and, and that nation willingly playing along with it is telling you that despite the fact that there's a big upside here in this country before the final finale blow, And this whole shift occurs. The shift's on, on track. It's going forward. It's happening. The Australians aren't doing this because they think it'll be really great for their relationship with the, with the United States. It's not. It's because they know long-term it's in their best interest. That's, that's why they're doing it. And they know that we're changing the marketplace from a U.S.-dominated market to a global market with some level of equal participation by all. They know the shift is bigger than them. So they're going along with the shift. And they're not stupid people, the Australians. It's not like, these are not like a, a bunch of morons or anything, right? This is a country that knows how to run things. They've developed very well. They've done quite well in the world marketplace. They're small because much of their nation isn't really suitable for a lot. So they have these pockets around the coast that they've developed. But 
in that retrospect, they've done very, very well for themselves from a technology and a building standpoint and, and an international trade standpoint. So when they start making a move, you have to at least acknowledge that it's being done from an informed standpoint. And, and this kind of all ties into something I've been trying to teach you guys for years now. Everybody's waiting because they know that mathematically our economic condition is unsustainable, that you cannot be $16 trillion dollars in debt And, and headed right into 20 trillion, 25 trillion. I mean, you just do the math and project it out over the years and you can see the U.S. debt just run away and you can see the interest payments run. And you know, you know intrinsically this can't continue. So everybody's waiting for the pop, like a big giant pustule, just boom, and it's just going to explode and everything's going to crash. And I keep trying to explain. And, and people like Carl Denninger over at Market Ticker keep saying it's over. It's over. This guy said it's over like eight times in three years. There is no over. There's shift. And what I've tried to explain is this is, and just so you guys know, this analogy is not true. If you put a frog in water and turn the water up and it starts to get hot, the frog will jump his ass out of there if he can or he'll die. And he won't just sit there and die. It's a, it's a myth. But it is the boiling frog analogy, right? If it were true, that's what's going on. This is a massive, massive economic game changer. It'll get a byline or two. In the news, they'll say it's only a hundred billion dollars, and they don't even have it yet. And they'll have some talking hang on. This doesn't have any effect whatsoever on it. And they'll say this China and Australia thing is a few billion bucks. Who gives a shit? It doesn't matter. They'll, and they'll behind the scenes, they're they're going to be going berserk, and they're going to be trying to apply every diplomatic piece of leverage they can. The same kind of crap they pulled in Iceland. We'll have spies all over, all over uh, Australia inside freaking financial hitmen trying to subvert this deal, but it's too late. It's too late. So on the front side of the issue, I tell you, don't nothing to see here, folks. Don't worry about it. That's when all the good shit's going on. When a cop comes out and says, nothing to see here, everybody go home, it's over. That's when all the good, the forensics and all the breakdowns happening. Okay, that's what's going on here. This is the tidal shift of the economic millennia occurring right now. This is the domination of the American-European world coming to an end in front of your eyes. And it's not the end of the world for you, okay? Because there's plenty of countries out there that haven't been in control of all this shit, and their citizens live pretty good lives. But if you continue with the mentality that everything's just going to stay with the way that it is, <laughs> you're going to get steamrolled by this. You have to be prepared for a new economic reality because, brother, it's coming. Let's look at something completely different here now, though. Um, let's talk about something going on in America today. And this is also commensurate with a new report that's out, the Freedom in the 50 States report, which I have to cover today because I got that from about a billion people. And it fits right in with walkingtofreedom.com, which is uh, our forum to help people actually migrate. But what I wanted to read to you is proof that it's already happening. When I started walking to freedom, I said very clearly in the mission statement that we're not trying to make this happen. We're trying to empower this, and it's already happening, that these states have already done it to themselves. So here's an article, and uh, it is uh, written by John Merlane of Investor's Business Daily. 
Americans are migrating to more free Republican states. Republican states. Um, I don't think that freedom and Republican necessarily go hand in hand, uh, especially at the federal level. But at the state level, there may be some point to that. Americans are migrating from less free liberal states to more free conservative states where they are doing better economically, according to a new study published Thursday by George Mason University, uh, University's Emeritus Center. Uh, the Freedom in the 50 States study measured the economic personal freedom using a wide range of criteria, including tax rates, government spending and debt, regulatory burdens, and state laws covering land use, union organizing, gun control, education choice, and more. It found that the freest states tended to be conservative red states, while the least free states were liberal blue states. That I believe. The freest state overall, the researchers concluded, was North Dakota, followed by South Dakota, Tennessee, New Hampshire, and Oklahoma. The least free state by far was New York, followed by California, New Jersey, Hawaii, and Rhode Island. Gee, what a shock. The study also compared its measures of economic and personal freedom and population shifts and income growth, and found that freer states tend to do better in both scores than those that are less free. For example, it found a strong correlation between the state's freedom ranking and migration, hmm. which means that Americans are gravitating towards states that have less intrusive governments. Quote, People are voting for places with greater freedom, end quote, said William Ruger, a political scientist at Texas State University, one of the co-authors of the study. That was true, he said, even after controlling for things like weather and amenities that might attract people to states independent of these freedom measures. The study found that states with more freedom tended to see stronger income growth. This was particularly true in states with more regulatory freedom. Adam Smith was right, Ruger said. If you have economic freedom, you have economic growth. IBD has previously reported, that's Investor's Business Daily, by the way, that red states saw stronger job growth, lower unemployment, and bigger gains in per capita income than blue states during an economic recovery. The data also shows that blue states have generally become less free over the past decade, while red states have tended to gain additional levels of freedom. The states with the biggest declines in freedoms were... Wyoming, that's an unusual suspect, isn't it? Illinois, New Jersey, New York, and Kansas. Those were the biggest gains were Oklahoma, North Dakota, Idaho, Utah, and New Mexico. That's a little bit surprising at some levels. And contrary to conventional wisdom, the researchers found that conservative states are just as likely as liberal ones to score well on measures of personal freedom, which looked at laws covering marijuana use, Gambling, marriage rights, alcohol and tobacco use, gun control, victimless crimes, and the like. I think there's, I think they're skewing it a little bit there, and I'll back it up here in a second. Quote, personal freedom does not relate straightforwardly to the left-right spectrum at all, the study noted. The state's findings also called into question claims made repeatedly by President Obama during the last year's campaign that tax cuts and deregulation won't produce growth and prosperity. Remember, he said that all the time. Quote, they tell us, end quote, he said in one speech that, quote, if we just cut more regulations and cut more taxes, especially for the wealthy, our economy will grow stronger, end quote. Here's the problem. He said it doesn't work. It has never worked. But if anything, the data shows precisely the opposite. On the front page of that article is a little graph that's very telling. And what it shows is the five top and five bottom states in the story. And uh, what they show 
is that the net migration is about 2% positive for the states with the most freedoms uh, and about a half a percent negative. That means that the populations of New York, California, New Jersey, Hawaii, and Rhode Island have been declining. And when you look at the fact that they even mentioned weather in here, that if you want great weather, California and Hawaii are hard to beat. For those people to be losing anybody, they got to really be doing it wrong. And um, I'm just going to kind of let that speak for itself, that this migration is happening, because what I want to do now is get over to this report that's out that's a very, very interesting report, and it's the uh, freedominthe50states.org report. And I want to talk about the rankings of some of the states and some things that are a little bit surprising and some of the methodologies that may have made that happen. Um, I don't think anybody's surprised at the two least free states. Uh, they are New York at number 50, and they are California at number 49. And I don't think anybody's surprised by that. And they're going to take the biggest beating in this uh, as people leave. Those are, and I think people are leaving New York way faster than California. I think that if you're in California, it, there's a, there, it's maybe a little tougher. And I don't know how much good it goes to Oregon. But Oregon versus California being 49 was ranked 28 overall. Washington 29 overall. So I guess it's better. But it's a long move. You go west, you're out into the desert, so it's a major move for a lot of people out of uh, California. Uh, my home state of Texas is number 14 overall, but I want to talk about how they said that there's no direct correlation between um, personal and economic liberties. I, I, I would beg to differ, and I would tell you that the personal liberty score of Texas is, uh, is only is 31. So 14 versus 31. Let's look at another overall power player, and I don't know the results of this at all, so we'll see. Uh, number five, Oklahoma. Overall is number five. When we go to a personal liberty for Oklahoma, though, it's number 28. I, I see a, a fairly strong correlation that a lot of states with a lot of economic liberty that have scored well have scored much worse with personal liberties. Let's look at New Hampshire. Uh, New Hampshire's number four uh, overall. Personal liberties, let's look at New Hampshire. Uh, they are also number five in personal liberty. So they have bucked the trend. And gee, that's where the, that's where the Free State Project is. I wonder if there's a correlation there. Um, but then let's look at something like, um, overall, let's look at a state that did pretty bad. Maybe not terrible, but not great. Louisiana, number 37. That's going to have a poor personal liberty score, I'm sure. Uh, there's there's almost no doubt in my mind that that's going to have a low personal liberty score. Number 40, they actually get a little bit worse, even though they're not already pretty good. Um, let's look at Nevada. Nevada has a number two for personal liberty score and a number 20 overall. So that kind of flips the other way around, doesn't it? Uh, Montana's personal liberty uh, is number 12 overall. Personal liberties, number 23. I do think that a lot of the southern states, my own included, that have very good economic liberties tend to have more poor personal liberties. They're more likely to want to tell other people how to live their lives. Uh, let's look at where Colorado is in this mess, because Colorado's been a hotbed lately. 19 overall, and uh, what's their personal liberty score? And their personal liberty score is number six. I'm sure that the marijuana law passed there had something to do with that. So to me, that maybe drags somebody who would be lagging economically up in the overall rankings. The important thing I think about this study is it allows you, and I think this is a great tool for us with Walking to Freedom, 
to sit and look at so many different categories. There's got to be, I think, 30 or 40 categories here. Let's check out a different one. This is one that's not really about a liberty, but in a way that it is. Find a job. What are our top states to find a job in, uh, according to this study? Well, uh, Idaho is number four, and I'm not gonna, I'm gonna, gonna get them in order because you have to hover over them to see. Uh, South Dakota number three, Nebraska number two, Kansas number one, and Texas number five. So now I can get them in order for you. So it's, uh, number one, it's Kansas, number two, Nebraska, number three, South Dakota, number four, Idaho, number five, Texas. If you're looking for a job, and you want a job, those are one of the, the, the five states to go to. Now, you know what they all have in common? They're all right-to-work states. None of them have forced unionization in them. You see, and this is what people think. There's no unions in Texas. There's unions in Texas. You just are not required to join one uh, just because of a, of a job that you particularly choose to take or not take. That's the difference. It's not you cannot compel a person to be in a union in Texas, and you can't compel an employer to have to use union labor. That's that's the only difference, and these states are doing much better. Now, let's see how many of them show up if we look at the overall economic freedom, so that kind of the tax situation. So let's go back to the ones that we had. Texas is number 14 economically, and they are in the top five for job creation. Oklahoma was in the top five for job creation, and they're number five economic with freedom. Uh, Kansas is number 23, middle ground, so not exactly 100%, and 19 for Nebraska and for Idaho number four. We see a strong correlation there, but let's look at maybe something a little bit more than the economic freedom overall. What is the tax burden like in these states? Texas number 10, Oklahoma number two, Kansas number 34, so higher taxes in Kansas. We might want to have to dig into what that is all about. 33 in Nebraska, Idaho, 8. Now, I'm going to bet that Nebraska and Kansas have a higher tax burden for something that's it's probably not going to be directly related to an income tax. And when I dig into the data, the two that kind of throw a, a kink in the works between the tax burden, uh, Nebraska and Kansas, what you find is that they're in a decline there that they've previously done better, and their large public payrolls are beginning to catch up with them. So the economic prosperity that they've had up till now may begin to wane. So what I like about this data is not only does it give us a bunch of different ways to look at liberty, because maybe you're more concerned with personal and economic liberty, or maybe you're more concerned the other way around, or more maybe with your business you're really concerned about the liability system. In a state like Texas that does really good in a lot of other categories, it's like number 36 in liability. Um, so maybe you, you know a state like North Dakota that's number two there might be a better state for you, or a state like Delaware which is the number one state for limiting liability. Uh, when it comes to property rights, you look at something like Texas being number 18, very consistently in the top 20, but the property rights uh, in, in a state like, let's say, California, are number 48, right? So I don't know why anyone can go there in the first place. But if you look even a place like, okay, for a lot of people that are New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Maryland, uh, all of the, the one place they see is maybe a way out of this crap is Pennsylvania. But if, if property rights are important to you, it's Texas is number 30, or Pennsylvania is number 37 there. So we can go through all of these things, but we can also look at the, the data behind them. You know, homeschool, 
uh, family can go in and look and see that, you know, your top states for homeschooling are Mississippi, Oklahoma, Kansas, Indiana, and Alaska. And if that's important to you, that matters. But in addition to all of that, you can actually go see where the data is coming from. And sometimes that'll tell you that a state that's scoring well in an area might be on the wrong track long term. So I think this is an incredibly in-depth, well-done, well-put-together report. I don't agree with everything, but that's because of my personal opinion and bias, which we all have. And if we don't admit that, then we're doing ourselves and others around us a disservice. Um, and that's what I think makes it actually valid is the fact that I can go in and look at all of the sectors. And if I say to myself, that's not really relevant to me, then, you know, I don't have to take it into consideration. You know, so one is marriage. I've been very clear in my stance of, of marriage, and I'm sure that they're looking mostly at um, gay marriage. And my state ranks number 40. Now, I don't think the gay marriage should be illegal. I think that we just need to leave people do whatever the hell they want as long as they're not hurting anybody else. And that if you extend a right to one citizen, you should extend it to all citizens equally. Um, on the other hand, I don't really care. It's not going to affect me one way or the other, so... Um, I'd love to see my state change on that. I don't think they're going to anytime soon, but it's not going to make a, it's not going to be part of my decision making process of where I'm going to live. But for somebody else, it might be very important to them, either because it, it directly affects them, okay, and because they want to engage in that, you know, contract, or because they have a personal aversion to it. And it really matters to them that it not be there. Or they really have a personal belief that it needs to be, and that's important enough to them to make a life decision on. But it's up to everybody to make their decisions here, even on very controversial issues. Why do I bring this up? That's the republic. That's the republic. That The state of Texas can do things the federal government cannot. And it's up to the people of the state of Texas to decide how they want to live. And as long as the constitutional rights of the individual citizen are not violated then that state can conduct business its way. And that creates a bastion of experimental groups where people get to gravitate toward the states that do the best job for their citizens. And right now, it's clear that states like Montana, states like Texas, states like Vermont, states you know, um, like Oklahoma, states like North and South Dakota, states like Tennessee are doing that for their citizens. And they're seeing people come to their states. And that states like New York and New Jersey and Rhode Island and California, at the bottom of the list, are watching people leave. Now, there's some interesting things here I want to point out. Um, Illinois uh, is, is a state that we bash quite a bit. Their ranking is number 45 overall. Uh, I would have actually thought they would have made the top five, but it, basically they're the sixth, I guess, then. Um, and they're not black in the map. And it, it's because, I guess, Hawaii, uh, who edged them out? Uh, Hawaii's 45, Rhode Island. Rhode Island is 46, New Jersey is number 48. So they got edged out. But, I mean, nobody's surprised about that. But what about Massachusetts? Massachusetts is number 30. And um, that's uh, that's kind of surprising, given the nature of a lot of things that you can't do in Massachusetts. Um, so there are some things that aren't quite as blanket as maybe we would expect them to be. 
And I actually would say that Massachusetts deserves to be higher on the list. And over at the Walking to Freedom Forum, there's no doubt they'll make the top five. And I think it's primarily because of how oppressive that state is with firearms. And I think if, if that's important to a person, that it's, it becomes immediately one of the most important things out there. And uh, so, uh, again, this study points you in the right direction, but in the end, it's up to us to decide for ourselves what's most important for ourselves. But this is a great tool. Tons of you guys sent it to me, so I wanted to make sure that I included it in today's show. Okay, moving on to something totally different. Um, about a month ago, we heard that Walmart was going to have a 7% drop in revenues, and this was proof the entire economy was going over the cliff, and it was really here, and a lot of the contrarian websites that report uh, the doom and gloom economic news exclusively and are waiting for the end, the ones that call the end over and over and over again, and yeah, there's no end because it's not an end, it's a shift, and they don't get it, and they think that cancer kills quickly and cancer kills slowly and all that jazz. And I came on and I said this wasn't a big deal. And uh, I explained some reasoning behind it, and I kind of alluded to something, but I didn't go headlong into it because I didn't have any proof of it yet. Now I have proof. Um, let me tell you why I felt that this was probably the case, and, and then you can kind of take it from there when I give you the story that we have. So when we were getting ready to move back here to Texas, there were certain things we were bringing with us and certain things we were giving away and certain plans we were making about new things we would buy when we got to our new house. And if it was a large item that we were going to have to move, then we decided, well, let's not buy it here in, in, in Podunk, Arkansas, where they don't have as much stuff as they do in the giant metroplex of Dallas-Fort Worth, where clearly anything that a Walmart store would have in, in Arkansas, they would have down here. So there was a TV that I wanted, and it was a really great little 40-inch TV for like 300 bucks. And uh, I was like, that would be great out in the garage. It's not an expensive TV. I don't want an expensive TV out in the garage, but I can put PowerPoints up on it when we do workshop. I can you know, run a cable line out there and play music on the music stations. I can, you know, I, you know, when I'm just out there working, I can put stuff on the TV in the background or whatever. It would be cool. But I want to get one of these TVs. Now, in, in this little place in Hot Springs, Village, Arkansas, there were like 50 of these things sitting on the floor. And I get down here, and I'm going to go down and buy two TV sets, right? Because I, mean, I need a big one for the I can, And that was my other thing. I can get a big one for the living room. I can Because there was no place for a big TV, like a 50-inch screen, in our place in Arkansas. It just didn't work. So we had this little-ass 37-inch TV, and I'm like, that can go in the wife's workout room, and I get a big TV now. So I'm going to go buy two TVs. The other TV that I'm going to buy was also very affordable and was all over the place. And I go down, and I want this TV and that TV. They have them on display, but they only have the display models. They don't have either one, and they don't know when they can get me one. And I start checking out like five other Walmarts, and none of the Walmarts in the area have these two damn TVs. Eventually, I kind of just said, look, I can wait, and they got them in for me, and I went back down and picked them up. Oh, actually, I got one from the store I was at, and I had to drive to another store. And this is not, you know, Jack's sob story. This is a first world problem, dude. You didn't get the TV you wanted. No, no, no. See, this is a much bigger thing. The stores clearly are not organized. If you have surplus inventory in one and no inventory in another, when you have another store that's a much bigger market with much greater demand, and the other store is a much smaller store with much less demand for product like that sitting in excess. And Walmart's been known for what? Efficiency. This was a clear concept that here's a guy with a wallet out going, 
I want to buy from you. Here, take my money. I'm sorry, we can't figure out how to get it for you. You're what? I should be able to buy it on your website and have it shipped to my house. What the hell's wrong with you? And it, you know, so I wanted these two particular TV sets enough, and I could not find them elsewhere. So I, I stayed the course and gave Walmart my money against their will, it almost seemed like. Most people don't buy a TV that way. They're like, if I can get a TV for about the same price from somewhere else, I don't care who makes it, especially one for a garage. So that means they're losing business from this type of behavior. And here it is on a bigger level. This is an article uh, on Yahoo Finance. And it says, customers flee Walmart empty shelves for Target and Costco. Margaret Hancock has long considered the local Walmart store, superstore, her one-stop shopping destination. No longer. During recent visits, the retired accountant from Newark, Delaware, says she failed to find more than a dozen basic items, including certain types of face cream, cold medicine, bandages, mouthwash, hangers, lamps, and fabrics. The cosmetics section, quote, looked like someone raided it, end quote, said Hancock 63. Walmart's loss was a gain for Kohl's Corporation, Safeway Inc., Target Corporation, Walgreen uh, Company, the chain's Hancock hit for the items she couldn't find at Walmart. If it's not on the shelf, I can't buy it, she said. You hate to see a company self-destruct, but there are other places to go. It's not as though the merchandise isn't there. It's piling up in aisles in the back of stores because Walmart... <laughs> doesn't have enough bodies to restock the shelves, according to interviews with store workers. In the past five years, the world's largest retailer added 455 stores, a 13% increase according to filings by the company's website. In the same period, its total U.S. workforce, which includes Sam's Club employees, dropped by about 20,000 or 1.4%. Walmart employs about 1.4 million U.S. workers. Let me give you those just the top-line numbers. They opened 455 more stores and dropped their employee headcount by 20,000. Hmm. How many people does it take to run a Walmart store? I mean, when you go in and you look at how many people are in there, whether they're doing something productive or not, I got to believe it's quite a few. Say it's 40 people at any one time, three shifts roughly, 120 people to a store. That's probably low, but let's just, let's just say that it's 120 people to store. That would mean you'd need about 50,000 people to run 455 new stores and you drop your head count by 20,000? Huh, interesting. Let me read a little bit more for you. Disorganized stores. A thinly spread workforce has other consequences. Longer checkout lines. Notice that. Help with electronics and jewelry and more disorganized stores, according to Hancock. Other shoppers and store workers. Last month, Walmart placed last among department and discount stores in American Customer Satisfaction Index. So the satisfaction with Walmart has gone down. Not that it was ever super sky high to begin with. Okay. In this, the sixth year in a row, the company had either tired or taken the last spot. The dwindling level of customer service comes as Walmart has touted its in-store experience to lure shoppers and counter-rival Amazon.com, Inc. So Walmart's been saying, hey, come and get the personal touch. Don't just order your crap from a website, but their personal touch sucks. And when I order from Amazon, I get bang-on service. I know when my item ships, when it's coming, when it's going to arrive, what time of day it's going to get there. They stay in touch with me and let me know everything I need to know. I can get opinions of the product from 
you know, tons of other people that actually bought it on it. And, 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 and Walmart saying, but yeah, we'll help you. And, and they're, you know, falling on their ass with it. Walmart traded at a 1.4% discount to Target last week on a price-to-earnings basis after averaging 5.9% premium to its smaller rival in the past two years. Walmart traded as high as 22% premium to Target in January 2012. Walmart rose 0.3% to 75.05 at 9.45 a.m. in New York. Our stock levels are up significantly in the last few years, so the premise of this story, which is based on comments of a handful of people, is inaccurate and not representative of what is happening in our store across the country, Brooke Buchanan, a Walmart spokesman, said in the emailed statement. Two-thirds of Americans shop in our stores each month because they know they can find the products they're looking for at low prices. Um, so this is, this is how an executive in a big corporation thinks. Our stock price is up, so there is no problem. This is how these people really think. And it's just, oh, it's a handful of people. What are you, what are you talking about? No, it's not a handful of people. It's become more and more difficult to find what you're looking for at a Walmart store. Now, I, I know you're thinking, who gives a shit, Jack? You're a prepper. You shouldn't care about Walmart like this. I don't, except that it's a huge portion of the U.S. economy. And when you're lied to about why it's sucking, Then you make improper decisions about the direction of the nation's economy. Because if Walmart's down 7%, then it must be lying to us and the whole economy's imploding. Not so much. I'm telling you why it's falling apart here. Getting worse. Last month, Bloomberg News reported that Walmart was getting worse at stocking shelves. According to minutes of office, an officer's meeting, an executive vice president had been appointed to work on the restocking issue, according to the document. At the Supercenter across the street from Walmart's Bentonville, Arkansas home office, salespeople on March 14th handed out samples of Chobani yogurt in Cliff Bars. Thirteen or so registers were manned with no lines, and the shelves were fully stocked. Three days earlier, about ten people waited in customer service line at Walmart in Syracuse, New Jersey, across the Hudson River from New York, the nation's largest city. Twelve of thirty registers were open, and the lines were about five deep. There were empty spaces on shelves, large enough for grown men to lie down in, and a woman wandered around vainly seeking a frying pan. Walmart's restocking challenge coincides with slowing sales growth. Same-store sales in the U.S. for 13 weeks ended April 26th will be little change. Bill Simon, the company's U.S. chief executive officer, said Friday, uh, said on February 21st earnings call. So you can read the rest if you want to, but here's basically what's happening. Walmart is in economic decline because they are failing at customer service. And you were told that when Walmart stock was going to go down and when an earnings report was low and an executive called it a disaster, that was indicative of the entire United States economy. This is why you have to dig deeper into things, folks. You can't just take crap at face value. It will always lead you to the wrong conclusion because there's always more to the story. This is just another example of that. The good news, a lot of people hate Walmart. So Walmart going into decline is not a problem as long as the economic activity is still occurring. Okay, That's a reality. Walmart could become half the size it is. And if the billions of dollars are still being exchanged and somebody's moving those goods and services, we have no problem at all. And that's the economic reality there. And right now, that appears to be what's happening. So the shift is occurring. I've given you all kinds of data to back that up today. But this belief that the U.S. economy is just going to fall on its, on its ass in the next couple of months here is improper. 
and using something like this to support that belief is inaccurate. So now you know the truth. Uh, as I promised you in the like, kind of the, the bottom half of the show here, and it's not even a half, it's maybe a quarter. Uh, I got about 15 minutes left. Let's go ahead and uh, and talk about some things that are completely unrelated. And here's a question uh, from Josh. Josh says, "Is there a way we embrace permaculture principles in a quote closed end quote environment?" The place in question is a paved area that will be developed as a community garden with the stipulation that only raised beds and the like will be used due to soil contamination. And the answer is absolutely yes. Um, this has actually been done quite a bit. There's been plenty of places. Uh, Bill Wilson had some work that he showed that was done in a basically an old parking lot where they put raised beds on top of the pavement. And, and it worked very, very well. There are some limitations, of course. We can't go in building contour-based systems. Uh, perennials are only going to have a root system as deep as the bed. Um, and so there's many things that we would do in a more natural setting that won't work as well in this type of a system, but it doesn't mean it won't work at all, and it doesn't mean it won't work very well. In fact, I would tell you that if this was my project, I would probably use tank gardening for this. And what I mean by tank gardening is you know the big stainless steel trough tanks and, and stock tanks that you can get from like Tractor Supply? Uh, that would be my go-to for this situation. And basically, I would almost do an in-tank culture, and I would put in a whole bunch of rough material in the bottom and then a layer of, 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 of good quality soil and then a good top layer of mulch. And this is actually outlined beautifully in uh, Jeff Lawton's Urban Permaculture DVD. There's a lady that grows uh, a garden exactly that way using tanks. And her garden is beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. It will never be full-on, wholesale, natural, biosphere-based permaculture. Because it can't. Because it can't get to the freaking surface of the earth, right? I mean, and there's just so many things that will never be connected. But I can still build good quality soil and, and, and solid fungal interactive relationships in a tank or in a raised bed. Uh, I, I can do that. I can go in, honestly, you could go in and basically just coat, you could make the whole thing into a race bed. Now, you really could. You could go in with like cinder blocks and mason in the whole daggone parking lot. And as long as you can get enough good quality fill, fill the whole thing up and, and grow, it would almost be like growing in the ground. I think that's not necessary, but it would enhance the ability to have things going on. If you think about a, an in-ground garden, with paths between the rows. And instead of the paths being bare, naked earth that erodes the way a farm, a row farm does it, those paths are also heavily mulched. And that, that skin is kept. And all that activity's going on down there. We look at the bed and we think to ourselves, okay, so that bed is where all the activity's taking place. And it's not. Those row, those pathways in between are providing plenty of nutrient, water reserves and things like that. So, That could be done. It would be harder than doing it with tanks uh, because you would need more material. But if you could get the material, you could basically you could be an acre parking lot a foot deep in soil. And, and I mean, if you did it right, you know, you got to plan for three or four years from then. You need to be going in with another course of cinder blocks around the outside. And I think with something that large a structure, you would probably have to have it broken into pieces with the center blocks course together and it's 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 like i said it's probably overkill i would just go in with with tanks 
But you can bring in perennials and tanks. You can bring in dwarf trees and shrubs and things like that with tank systems. You can build basically food forest systems. And if you get things a little bit too close together, you know, you can go in there with a tractor or some lot of manpower and yank one of those damn things a few feet and space it out a little bit more. So absolutely you can do this. I would really recommend uh, that if you're involved with this particular project, you get Jeff Lawton's Urban Permaculture DVD and take a look at there's a school garden in there that would teach you a lot about how to do things like this in this type of environment. And the, the lady with the tank garden, she's not even doing it on concrete. She's just doing it that way in her backyard and front yard because it works so well. So certainly you can do it. It's not the same, but it doesn't mean it's not highly effective. Here's a prepper piece of advice for you. Let's say that you need water. Imagine, I'm going to read right off Backwoods Engineers blogs here. Um, imagine this scenario. For whatever reason, you are bugging out and you have to travel through urban or suburban areas or even along the interstate highway. It's hot, dang hot, and you need water. There's no streams or lakes or ponds nearby. Nothing is open. There's no power to operate a soda machine, even if there was one around, and you've got a container in your bug-out bag, but you need a source of clean water. If there are commercial buildings, and there is water available, but without a special tool, you can't get it. What are you talking about, Backwoods? Ever seen one of these special faucets on the side of a convenience store or gas station or other commercial building? You've got a picture of it, and if you look at it, you might not even know what it was, but you'll recognize it. Okay, It's known as a silcock hydrant. They are everywhere in suburban and urban environments. They're used by building maintenance people for connecting water hoses for washing sidewalks, etc. It's a good bet that almost all have good water in them 24-7, 365, whether the business is open or not. Even with the power down, there's probably still going to be some pressure left, which allows you to get some hydration. I recently drove around a medium-sized town a few miles from my place with an eye on spotting these. I spotted key hydrants at the following places. Banks, fast food restaurants, malls, convenience stores, gas stations, dentist offices, and department stores. Yeah, keyed Silock hydrants are everywhere. Just to be clear, these things are on the outside of buildings. He's not talking about breaking into a building here. He's talking about turning a water faucet on, okay? But you need one of these special keys to open one. Without a Silock key, it's going to be hard to get the water. Yeah, you could probably use pliers or a Leatherman or a Gerber tool, but why mess with that? Just put one of these babies in your bug-out bag. And for $6.42 on Walmart or Amazon.com, why not? Throw this little three-ounce key in your bug-out bag, and wherever you see a commercial building, most likely you can get some water in an emergency situation, and the businesses are closed. I've got one of these in every bug-out bag, in every vehicle, in my family. They may even be available at your local building supply store. I haven't checked. Just a little survival tip from Old Backwoods. That's one of the coolest things, and that's a person that anybody could have noticed that, but somebody just paying attention. That, that's all that came down to. And I'm thinking, I've seen these things all over the place. And with having run businesses in the past and all, I know exactly what they are. And I never really thought, hey, you know what? If I just had a key to turn that thing on. Six bucks, $6.42 on Amazon. I'll have a link in today's show notes so that you can get one if you'd like to add it to your survival kit. Uh, for those of us in urban, suburban environments, that is probably one of the most valuable little $6 expenditures we can make. All right, completely different story. Remember about a week ago I told you about something that's being termed the Monsanto Protection Act, this amendment that got introduced in the Senate anonymously, and I was 
flipping out like Mike was ready to blow a freaking gasket. You guys could probably imagine my eyeballs turning red and a vein blowing out of my head when I found out that a senator had anonymously submitted this freaking pile of crap legislation, which, by the way, was worked into uh, a bill that was designed to keep the, bill, the government running without the consequences of sequester. Uh, I mean, it was so important that we get this done, and yet this pile of crap got stuck in here. And it's basically uh, a, an amendment that says if the federal court says that Monsanto has, per, or and it's not really Monsanto, it's any of these genetically engineered uh, foods, it determines that, that, that they were not properly tested and orders an injunction to stop growing them that they don't have to, basically. That the EPA can say, you don't, you know, you don't have to do it. Well, you do the testing, but you just keep growing it anyway. So it's being termed the Monsanto Protection Act. Well, guess what? We know the ass clown that did this. And the guy that wrote this, I'm wondering if he listens to the Survival Podcast. This is on naturalsociety.com. Anthony Gusardi or Gucardi. This guy's last name. I don't mean to disrespect him by getting his last name wrong, but the best I can do. Gusardi, I think, is how you would say it. Uh, let me read this to you, and you, you pick up on why you think that maybe he might be a TSP listener here. It should come as no surprise to many of you to find out that Monsanto actually authored the wording of its own Monsanto Protection Act, hidden in the recently passed and signed Continuing Resolution Spending Bill. How could a major corporation write its own laws and regulations, you ask? Quite frankly, I think it's important to understand that the entire Senate passed a bill containing the Protection Act, but the politician who actually gave Monsanto the pen in order to write their very own legislation is none other than Roy Blunt, a Republican senator from Missouri. As the latest IB Times article reveals, the Missouri politician worked with Monsanto to write the Monsanto Protection Act, This was confirmed by a New York News report I will get to shortly. As you probably know, I do not play the political clown game of left versus right. There it is, guys. And instead, highlight corruption and wrongdoing wherever it is found. Regardless of party affiliation, in the case of Senator Blunt, he admits to colluding with Monsanto, a corporation that has literally been caught running slave-like working conditions in which workers are unable to leave or eat, among other many misdeeds. This is one of the most blatant offenses against the citizens of the United States I've seen in a long time, a population that Blunt swore to serve. It's not for the United States public at all, and it's a serious matter that I don't think is properly understood. The passing of this bill into law means that Monsanto is now immune from federal courts regarding any supervision or action on their crops that have been deemed to be dangerous for the people or the environment. Let me stop there, because this is where... This is where... People reporting this are going off the deep end into the world of non-reality. What did this act actually say? It said that the EPA can, and it kind of compels them to do so, say, you know what, you said not to grow these sugar beets because they weren't tested right, and that's fine, and now we have to do the additional testing, but Monsanto sugar beets can still be grown. That's, that's what it says. The EPA already had that power. The EPA already used that power. This bill in of itself is not as horrible, this amendment, it's not a bill, is not as horrible as it's being made out by the people opposed to it. I'm certainly opposed to it, but we got to be careful. Now, why are they doing this, though? So that they can morph it into something bigger over time. They thought they'd slip this in, and, and people would look at it and go, ah, they can already do this, it's not a big deal, and it's temporary, because this is a six-month provision. Ah, th these guys aren't done with this yet. But the guy that did it anonymously at first was 
Senator Blunt. Um, Missouri, if you send this ass clown back to, back to the Capitol, something's wrong with you. I don't care if you think the GM foods are good. You got a, a politician here that says, yeah, I, I worked with Monsanto to write this, and then I introduced it yeah, into the Senate, and I didn't really kind of put my name to it, and then later it came back that I did it. And you think that's acceptable? It's not. I don't care if you agree with what he did or he didn't. The fact that he wrote it in consort with this this megacorp says he did it and, and, and back-ended it into a bill that had nothing to do with this crap, this guy's got to go. So I'll put a link into this uh, uh, for you. And it, it really, again, I want you to understand what this thing does. It kind of goes from a standpoint of, well, the EPA can do this, to basically Congress telling the EPA, in this instance, you should do this. Okay? And it was written by Monsanto lobbyists and executives. In collusion with a United States senator... And anonymously introduced, as we had reported last week, before they got the name of the clown behind this, into a, a bill that was being pushed through rapidly to deal with economic consequences of the fact that your Senate and your House have failed to produce a budget for the last six years. Welcome to America. Welcome to America. This is what America is becoming today. Uh, next, I want to tell you about a little thing that uh, I put out on Facebook, and some people actually defended it. Just a few, but I, I don't real, I don't get it. So a listener sent me this picture, and it's from uh, a local group in Southern Illinois um, having an Easter egg hunt. <sighs> okay, I I'm going to put a link so you can go to Facebook and look at the picture, and you should be able to see the picture. You can't comment on it without account, but if you don't use Facebook, you should still be able to see the picture. It's a whole bunch of kids running around. Search for Easter eggs. What's the problem? I mean, do you have a problem with Easter egg hunts, Check. No, I don't have a problem with Easter egg hunts at all, especially if they're actually Easter egg hunts. I have no problem with them. I think Easter egg hunts are cool. I think kids enjoy them. I think I've seen everything from schools and church groups all over the country conduct Easter egg hunts, and parents do it with their kids. And I've seen family events on Easter Sunday where the whole family gets together and does it, and all the kids go out and find eggs. I think it's great. I think it's great. Um, as long as the kids actually have to look like, like actually try to find the frickin' eggs. This picture is a parking lot with all the cars removed. A wide open, barren parking lot with hundreds of eggs in the open spread around so that every child can find a frickin' egg. Why overreact to this, Jack? Why get upset about this? It's just an Easter egg hunt. Jeez, are you going to get all upset about this? Um, this is part of the problem, folks. This is what we're turning our children into. If searching for an egg in the grass or having to look behind a slide or having to, to, to find a place and actually to put some effort into finding a freaking plastic egg with M&Ms in it is too much trauma for our children because they might fail, you know what? We're done. We're screwed. And the only explanation people were able to give that was, you know, something that would be plausible is just not true. And that was, when you look at this place, it looks like, well, maybe they didn't have any place to do this, right? Maybe there wasn't a place where, well, the, the guy that sent me the picture said last year they did it kind of in a field. So they had a place. They did it last year. Apparently, some of the kids were unhappy with how many eggs they found. Now, look, when I was a kid and we did this, 
I remember this. A few things that I remember from my childhood that didn't suck, right? And we'd go out, like, at the church week, because I went to Catholic school till I was in, like, seventh grade. And we would do this. It's a big part of, like, this, the whole thing that went on in the springtime with school and the church and everything. And we had little kids, like kindergartners, right? And, you know, I was in, like, second, third grade. You're still doing this in, like, second or third grade. You're young enough to do this. By the time you're, like, fifth grade, it kind of wanes, and it's for the little kids. But, you know, there's a big difference between, like, a pre-K kid and a, a kindergarten kid and, like, a third grader. There's a, there's a, a coordination, a visual acuity, uh, a, a mo, you know, mobility capability, move around. And you know, some of the kids, you know, their brothers and sisters would come, and you're talking, like, two-year-olds and three-year-olds even that are out here. So when they hid the eggs, they would actually hide some of the eggs really, really good, And then they would put a few of them like right out in the open. And you know what? If you were an older kid, you knew to leave those freaking eggs alone. You know those were the little bitty kids. That's what they were for. So that they could have fun too. You know? And they were still hitting a little bit. And you know, the bigger kids would take the little kid and help. Hey, do you see it over there? That type of thing. And everybody had fun. And if you didn't find as many eggs as somebody else, that's tough. And it's just a freaking plastic egg anyway. With an with a, with a M&M or something in it. It's not that big a deal. We are literally stripping our children of any challenges at all in life. And some moron, and you're a moron, he probably doesn't listen, because I can't even, this is one of these people you wonder, why are they even on my, my, uh, my, my uh, Facebook page? This is what he says. His name is Christopher Waddles. Yeah, Mr. Waddles says, seriously, who gives a shit? They're just little kids playing Easter, picking up Easter eggs and having fun in the process. Don't ruin it fun for them by spreading this kind of crap with all, all the facts. It's truly depressing to see the TSP has stooped this low by pointing this out. If you don't want your kid to do this kind of Easter egg hunt, then go somewhere else. If you do, then stay and enjoy the Easter egg hunt. So he does listen. This guy's a moron! You're a freaking moron! Okay, first of all, how am I ruining it for him? They're in Illinois, I'm in Texas. They don't know about that. They don't care about me. They're little kids. They could give a damn about me. It's their parents and the people behind this that are stripping the challenge. I want to know who is traumatized from your past of looking for Easter eggs on Easter Egg Sunday and having to look too hard. Is there anybody who, who was harmed by that? And I want, you, I want to know who out there can say there were times in my life when things were made too easy for me and I was kind of stripped of the challenge and the fun. My point with this picture is parents, you're as responsible for this as the schools or the church organizations or the community groups that do it. You're just as responsible. Don't let them do this. Be a voice and say, hey, are we really going to do this? Or, you know what, let's not do this. Let's take it over there and well, what if some of the children don't find it? We'll help them all find it. We'll, we'll deal with that. Let's just not, let's not do this. Stand up to crap like this. Don't think it's not important because it isn't. It's not TSP stooping, you freaking moron, Christopher Waddles. This is not me stooping to anything. This is me pointing out the fact that our country is destroying the future of our children by removing anything resembling a challenge. I don't know how anybody defends this level of idiocy. Yes, it angers me. If it was one place doing this, if this was one thing, I wouldn't care. It's not one thing. It's not one place. I have watched... 
the resiliency of our children chiseled and stripped away by political correctness, nanny state BS. You might as well take a kid and wrap him in freaking foam rubber the day he's born at this point. Little kids fall down, they scrape their knee, they get up, you put a band-aid on it, mommy kisses it, and they go on with their life, and they learn that they can have an injury and survive. We don't need to run to the freaking emergency room because the kid's skin is knee. I've been to emergency rooms for real reasons. I've seen kids in the emergency room with a freaking skin knee. This is all related. This is all connected. And I'm telling you as parents, if your kids are going to be involved in groups and things like this, You have to be involved too, and you have to take a stand. And we got to start pushing back on stuff like this. This is probably more important than who the next person you vote for is, folks. It really is. Because the person you vote for and the person you vote against when you vote for the first person are going to pretty much do the same thing. They're going to destroy your country and grow government. But whether or not our children are able to deal with the catastrophe that we're actively creating for them right now, we have a direct opportunity to influence that today by making sure they know how to deal with challenges. Because you know what, folks? Do you know why this is important? Because us, this generation right now, and the generation right before us, okay, from the baby booners down to us, and when I say us, I mean people of my age racket the 40s, right? The Gen Xers and the baby boomers and the tweeners, we did this crap. We did this. This is our fault. We let this happen on our watch. God, I can't believe he's so upset. It's just an easy... It's not just... This is a symptom, okay? This is like, okay, if you came to me and I was a doctor and I saw a little bump on your arm, okay? So it's just a little bump. And I go, uh, damn, that looks like smallpox. Right now, it's just a couple little bumps. But it's smallpox. I'm not overreacting when I call CDC and put you into quarantine, vaccinate everybody that you've been in contact with, and start trying to try. No, because even though it's only right now, it's only a sniffly nose and a couple little bumps, it's freaking smallpox. If you come to me and you go, I got this sore in my leg and it hurts, and, and I throw a cat skin on and I see that there's a tumor in your bone, I'm not overreacting. The symptom might seem small, but the totality is what I'm concerned with as a diagnostician, and it's someone that's going to try to treat you and save your life. These kids picking these plastic eggs up off a concrete parking lot because they can't be challenged in any way, shape, or form. And don't tell me I don't have all the facts, Mr. Wallace, because the person that sent me the picture was involved and gave me all the facts, including there was a place for this to be done, and they didn't do it this year because they didn't want any of the kids upset that they didn't find It's exactly what happened is the little bump that's a system, but there's billions of these bumps. The kids I had on before, they can't be trusted to cross, cross a ditch. And the ditch is a four-inch deep, two-foot-wide concrete trough. And the parents want to spend a million dollars for a bridge across it. In Plano, Texas, all of this crap is interrelated. Parents, you got to draw the line. It's why I brought someone on to talk about leaving the school systems. It's why I continuously tell you guys, if your kids are going to be in public schools, make sure you correct All of the misinformation that's given to them. Ask them when, they're, when they tell you they learned something to give you more information like why and how do you know that to be true. Is it just because you were told so? And say, yeah, you put that down on a test so you get an A, but form your own opinion of it. We should be teaching our children facts in schools, not opinions. But that's what we're teaching is opinions. And it's a statist opinion. And this is an extension of it. Your government... Your rulers, the elites that control this country, 
They want you compliant and dependent, and this is how it starts. This is how it starts. Don't think it's as minimal as people want you to believe that it is. It's not minimal. It's not not important. And there's so much crap. I just brought you another story last week. Remember that the, 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 the school in Mass Ipswich, Massachusetts, banned honors night because some of the kids that didn't make the honor roll would be devastated by. It. You'd be devastated that you got a C and you didn't make the honor roll. Well, good. Maybe you'd be devastated and work harder to get a B next time. Well, some children can't. Yes, and some people can't slam dunk a basketball and are never going to win a national championship ring in the NBA. Some people can't throw a football 70 yards and are never going to be quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers or the Dallas Cowboys. That's the real freaking world. We're stripping our children of reality. While we're doing all this, think about this. The children, think of the children. While we're doing this, bullying in our schools, in our society, is worse today than any time in history. And parents are like, ah, I remember when I was a kid. It's not like when you were a kid. When I was a kid, we all picked on each other. We all took, took the piss out of each other constantly. right? But there was a limit to what you did to somebody. Not anymore. You know why? Because a kid that feels so entitled to things, that's a little bit more gifted than the next kid, feels he has a right to do this. You can't tell me that we're doing better for our children when we've removed the challenges and they are harming each other more than they have at any time in the history of the United States of America. We have children killing themselves over this today. right? When I was a kid, if a kid killed himself, he was on drugs. He was, he was stupid and got so wrapped up in a girl that left him that, that you know he, he thought his world was over. No one killed themselves when I was in school because they were bullied. It's not just that the kid can't stand up to it because he's been disempowered. It's that the other disempowered children are disproportionately now attacking their own. This is a catastrophe. And these kids, these kids are going to be running companies and businesses in 15 years. Kid that couldn't be challenged to look behind a blade of grass to find a freaking egg is going to be running a company in 20 years, 15 years, 20 years, somewhere in there. Yeah. They're going to be doctors, nurses, lawyers. They're going to be our future politicians. So this is great. This is where we're headed. Right down a freaking cesspool. Right down a freaking cesspool. Because parents don't want their children to be mildly inconvenienced or to ever suffer loss. Don't allow it to happen. This is part of your sentinel requirement. Not on your watch. Not on my watch. When you see this, point it out and point out that it's wrong and put some fun back into the lives of our kids. It's not just about making them better adults. It's not just about challenging them. It's not just about making them stretch a little bit. It's actually enjoyable for kids to be challenged. They like it. They might not like it at first because we've had our head up our ass for so long. We've, we've removed the experience. But once you get that Deprogramming done. Kids are resilient. And all of a sudden, they, they like this stuff. And don't tell me the world's a different place today. That's not an excuse. That's the problem. One more and we'll wrap up for today. And we're going to end with an interesting and very challenging question. Another one of these almost as challenging as the racial question I was asked a week ago. Hey, Jack, do you think it's libertarian to criticize another person's religion? 
Is that a freedom that we should have? Should we always respect religion? Why is it commonly accepted that we can talk bad about a political idea and not about a religious idea? I believe it's morally wrong to criticize a person for their race, but to criticize their ideas, I think that's acceptable. What are your thoughts? P.S. I know you're not one to talk about religion, but listening to yesterday's show on liberty, I thought I'd throw this one at you. Keep up the great show. Lawrence. <sighs> Let me talk about right versus wrong versus polite versus rude. I think that if someone has a religious idea or a religious belief or a religious faith or a religious conviction and without being asked to, without being engaged, without being said, I want to discuss this and debate this with you, if you openly criticize their faith, their religion or whatever, it's, it's, maybe it's not something that's illegal, maybe not even immoral, but it is rude. It, it, there's no point to it. You're trying to take a person's faith from them. And the reality is that that is something that should be a personal freedom. So when you get it at the, at the surface level, at the top level, I don't think we should be engaged in it at that level. Well, I'm going to get to another point where that changes. And, and here's why. As long as they're living in liberty their way and not trying to impose their will on you, it's none of your freaking business who they believe in, what they believe in, how they practice their faith. Until they do another person harm, it's not your freaking business. Any more than it's your business if Joe and, and Jim get married. D d have the freedom. It has to be on both sides. Where it changes, and I got some... You know, flack for some of my comments on the blog about this this week with the gay marriage thing and how when it's always opposed, it always seems to be opposed by people that do it biblically and say this is why God doesn't like it and all this other Romans 1 says and all this stuff, okay? It doesn't matter that the Bible says that to people that don't believe the Bible. And, and you legislating it, now it's open for debate. Now it's open for discussion. And a Christian... If you really are what you say you are, and you really believe what you say you believe, and you bring it out and you try to use it to intervene in the life of another person, and you get told, I don't believe that, we don't want you bringing that into this state-enforced area, because there should be a separation of the two areas, and you're offended by that, that's your problem. That's your problem. Okay, You're the one that brought it into the political spectrum. Now, if I'm standing outside of your church with a sign that says, you know, something, I'm not going to say something because somebody's going to be offended by it, and, and sh maybe should be, but something offensive toward religion in the front of your parking lot, you know, if I'm standing out there with a sign of all of you people are about to waste an hour of your day in front of your parking lot, I'm being rude and obnoxious, right? And there's no purpose for that other than to be rude and obnoxious. But if you come to me and you tell me that, you know, you know what, no one should be able allowed to consume alcohol anymore because I have biblical evidence to support that that's against religion and God and the way that we should be living as a Christian nation. I have every right to tell you, not only do I think you're wrong, but your religion does not apply to my liberty. And then there's a stupid statement that's made by people, especially pastors that want to get on this bandwagon and beat some political issue across the head. And I'm not saying they shouldn't talk about politics, but they should talk about it with a factual basis and maybe give you the rationality for why they believe what they believe. But they shouldn't come out and say something like, freedom of religion does not mean freedom from religion. I've heard that one. Have you heard that one? I have one word of response to that notion. Bullshit. Bullshit. Because... To have freedom of religion, I have to have the freedom of mine as well. 
And so long as mine does not harm the indiv another individual or violate their rights in any way, I get to practice my religion my way. And so do you. So if you don't think that anybody should have a beer, don't drink a beer and leave me alone. And if you don't think, and your church doesn't think, that two women or two men should get married, then your church should not be compelled to sanction that arrangement. All right, But if somebody else wants to do it, it's none of your freaking business because they have the freedom of their religion as well. And this is a place where, and I'm going to explain where Christians are both right and wrong on being persecuted. Okay. Recently there was another news story. I'm not even going to include a link to it. I don't want to look it up. It annoyed the hell out of me, and I think somebody needs a punch in the throat over it. A school somewhere has banned the word Easter At school, you cannot say Easter. You can say spring bunny. You can say spring break. You can say Easter. You can say uh, spring eggs. But you can't say Easter eggs. This is stupid. And this is clearly, absolutely an infringement on a fundamental right of a Christian to simply be who they are. And when they get attacked that way, they naturally feel like anything coming from that direction must be an attack. Okay? What you don't understand, though, It's when you're constantly shoving your belief system on people that don't share it that the other side, the deists, the atheists, the agnostics, the pagans, the rest of the people that don't share your beliefs, we feel the same way. There was a time I was at a mall. Guy comes up and says, I'd like to tell you about Jesus. I'm like, I know all about Jesus. Thank you for your time. I'd like to be on my way, please. And he says, but, but you need to know, and I, I don't need to know anything. And I'm being very polite at this point. I don't need to know anything. I appreciate what you're doing, but go do it with somebody else. I would really like to be left alone. And he says, I can tell that you need the power of prayer in Christ in your life. And he starts praying over me. And at that point, I said, hold on. Okay, right now, you're interfering with something I believe in. I believe this is wrong, and I want you to stop now. And he kept, and he's praying, and he's like doing the, he's like, I don't know, Pentecostal, he's doing the in tongue stuff or some, 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 something like that. And to get him to stop, I had to say, listen, I don't want to do you harm, but you're, you're now at this point, you're infringing, I'm, I'm, you're now following me around the store, praying over my body. Okay? I, I now consider you to be assaulting me. And if you don't stop this, I'm going to plant you on your ass, and I'm going to do it right now. And then like a, like a person from the store came over and ended up escorting the guy out. Okay? That's not acceptable either. Okay? And we have two sides in this debate, perfectly divided. And a question, should we be able to criticize somebody's religious ideas? I smell the dichotomy yet again, folks. Who do you think benefits from this? Do Christians benefit from this? Do deists like myself benefit from this? Do agnostics or atheists benefit from this? Or do the people in power, they get to sway your vote one way or another and get you once again to not ask the question, where's our $16 trillion at? Do they benefit? Do they benefit? Because there's people out there that thinks if everybody just went to church on Sunday like they did, everything would be fine. And there's people that think if everybody would let go of a foolish belief system in their view, that everything would just be fine. And both of you are wrong. Both of you are wrong. I believe that a person can be an outstanding member of society and be a fundamentalist Christian. And I believe that a person can be an outstanding member of society and not share that belief in any way, shape, or form. 
I don't believe that those people need to fight with each other or, or argue with each other unless they want to engage in actual debate at academic levels. That's fine. And if that's if they both choose to do so. And I believe they should respect each other and they should practice living their lives their way on their terms at all times and never apologize for who they are to anybody. But I don't think it's right for either one of them to use the force and the power of the state to enforce what they believe on another person. And then people say things, well, we legislate morality all the time. It's illegal to kill somebody, and that's the problem. It's also widely accepted by just about any human being on the planet that's not a psychopath that it's morally wrong to kill somebody. Where do your morals come from? Let's not go. See, and this is, this is where the people on the religious side of this debate, they go off into the deep end. I had a lady today on the blog say, you know, basically, do you think, because of the gay marriage thing, do you think pedophiles have a choice? And I'm like, yeah, they have a choice not to rape kids. But I think there's something deep-seated wrong in their mind that they would be willing to do this. And then she goes on to compare pedophilia and homosexual behavior. And that if we, if we say that homosexuality used to be considered a mental illness is now okay, later down the pike we could have a situation where men can go out and, and, and have sexual relationships with little boys and that would be okay. And I mean, I'm ready to flip out when I hear something like that. That's one of the most ignorant statements I've ever heard in my life. Okay? Because that presumes that if a straight man forces himself or coerces a 10-year-old girl, that his crime is somehow less heinous. That is a criminal activity. Two gay people doing whatever they do is two consenting adults. One is society's business. It's victimization of a citizen, and in this case a child. The other is two consenting adults not bothering you. When you start, and, and when people from the religious community start to do things like that, you put up a huge wall between yourselves and everybody that doesn't believe with you, and with many people that do agree with you. And this is what I said about that. That is as reasonable to assert as if I were to say something offensive. And again, I do not believe any of the things I'm about to say right now. Please, no one take me out of context. If somebody takes me out of context, I might come find you and, and smack you, really. I mean, seriously, if I get taken out of context too. But imagine if I said that being Christian leads to screaming obscenities and hateful things And that your, 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 your son or your brother or your husband is burning in hell today because he's a veteran and he's returned dead and he's being buried today. And that if you're a Christian, it leads to that behavior. Okay. Or imagine that I said that being a Christian leads people to blow up buildings and kill innocent people because they're blowing up abortion clinics. Imagine that I said that that's what Christianity leads to. How would is a, if those of you that are Christian? How would you feel about that? Or what if I said that Christian Christianity leads to people having their children go to Jesus camp and pray over a cardboard silhouette of George Bush? Now, all three of those things have been done by people that call themselves Christians. They all are crazy, irrational, and in some cases, criminal behavior. Okay. I do not say that, gee, if we let Christians continue to practice their faith, this could be considered normal. And Because I know that that's not normal and the criminal behavior, and that plenty of us would agree that you can't blow up a building just because you don't like something, whether we're Christian, Muslim, Jew, deist, atheist, agnostic, you know, whatever. Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist. Which, no, you can't do that. It's criminal behavior. 
And I'm not going to hold an entire group of people responsible for the actions of some idiots. I'm just saying maybe you shouldn't either. And you might wonder why I've gotten into some of these hot-button issues on the Survival Podcast lately. The show is about liberty. And liberty is not always getting what you want. In fact, if you always get what you want, you're not living in liberty. Because that means that you're taking it away from somebody else. Now, having what you want in your life and being free to do it, that's fine. But getting your way with how other people conduct their lives, what they believe, what they say, is intolerance. And you, and some of you guys that are in some of these churches, you let your pastor tell you that intolerance is good or that it's not intolerant or you're, and make tolerance a bad thing. I'll just refer you to your own book. There was few people in the world ever being described as as tolerant as Jesus Christ. Well, he was intolerant of this and intolerant. Yeah, but he was tolerant of a lot of other things. And if you want people to listen to you, you need to meet them somewhere on their own level. Is it okay to criticize someone's religious beliefs or ideas? In my view, the only time that it's not Yeah, I'm not saying it's immoral at any other time or nobody should do it or anything like that. But the time that it's definitely appropriate is when it's attempting to be used to impinge upon the liberty of others. When you want to use the force of the state and you bring a religious reason for it, ignoring the fact that many people don't believe what you believe and you're trying to legislate not morality but faith, then it's appropriate. It's absolutely appropriate to meet that with criticism when necessary to make a point. And if you want to be taken seriously, you need to accept that. And let me tell you something. This is something that it seems like a lot of Christians want to, like a one-way street on. They want to be able to tell you what they think, but they don't want to hear what you think in return. And if you tell them what you think, then you're offensive. You don't, you don't get it that way. You don't get to eat, have your cake and eat it too, right? One way or the other. If you eat the cake, it's gone. Right? So if you eat it, there's no more cake. If you want to have the cake, you don't get to eat it. And this works in all walks of life. And religion's not special. It does, it's not immune from this. But on the other side, I gotta tell you, especially in the atheist community, you guys that are worried about somebody saying Easter or somebody saying Merry Christmas at a store, you guys are as much a part of the problem. You might be more a part of the problem. I don't care if somebody says Merry Christmas to me. I don't care if somebody says Happy Easter to me. I don't, it doesn't bother, my response is going to be Merry Christmas to you too. Why do you care about that? If there's going to be reasonable opportunity for this nation to move forward, we're going to have to get past the economy, including our religion. You're going to have to be willing to work with someone who believes something you do not for the common things that we can agree upon, like personal liberty, independence, and freedom, where there is no hope for the republic. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like.
there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Nobody up there cares, they're living for today. 